Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. This music may take you right back to your childhood or back to when your kids grew up watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Today we'll learn more about Fred Rogers, a pioneer in children's television programming, who, according to biographer Maxwell King, did not let his influence or celebrity change his unassuming, gentle personality. It was this very unique personality and TV presence that drew children to a show each day over several decades. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? I was one of those kids. Imagine my delight when I met Mr. Rogers while I interned at Channel 11 News in Pittsburgh when I was in college. We were doing interviews with voters on Election Day. And all of a sudden, Mr. Rogers walked out of the polling site in the Squirrel Hill neighborhood. I was starstruck. What are your memories of Fred Rogers? Was there a particular episode that stood out in your mind? We want to hear from you. Join the conversation. 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, despite being a beloved television figure, there's a lot about Fred Rogers that we don't know. But a new biography is coming out that focuses on his upbringing and explains how Mr. Rogers started his iconic children's program. The author of that book is joining us today from the studios of WQED in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Maxwell King, president and CEO of the Pittsburgh Foundation, former president of the Pittsburgh-based Heinz Endowments, and author of this new biography that's coming out and will be in bookstores in just a couple of days, The Good Name. The Life and Work of Fred Rogers. Uh, Maxwell King, welcome to our show. Good morning. Thanks for uh, uh, giving me a chance to visit with you. Now, how did you uh, become acquainted with uh, Fred Rogers? Uh, you've lived in Pittsburgh what, for more than two decades. And do you remember uh, seeing his show? And what was your impression? Uh, back about uh, 17, 18 years ago, when I was the president of the Heinz Endowments, which is one of the big foundations out here, and a funder of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, I got an invitation to come to his office here at the studios at WQED and talk to him. And I assumed as a funder we would be talking about the program, what his plans were. Uh, We'd be talking about money, about funding. (coughs) Excuse me. And um, it was none of that. I sat here and talked to him for about an hour and a half and we never talked once about the program or the work or the funding of it. We just talked about life, about uh, children and parents and vacation homes and uh, Pittsburgh. That's interesting. That was your encounter with him because in preparing for today's show, uh, doing lots of reading, watching different videos of people uh, talking about how um, they met Mr. Rogers. And it was always that he was so genuine that when he spoke to you, you could tell that he actually cared about what you were saying and nothing else mattered except that exchange that you were having with him. He was a great listener. He was very accomplished at, uh, at listening, at hearing what people had to say, asking very good questions. Uh, a lot of the journalists that I've talked to said that when they tried to interview him, they got interviewed themselves <laughs> because he would 
turn the questions back. And the, the sort of common, <coughs> excuse me again, common understanding was that Fred Rogers was uh, just the way in person that he was on television. And in a lot of ways that was true. His, his personality was the same, his approach was the same, uh, but actually in person there was a real uh, depth and an intensity to him that you didn't see on television. Mm. <clears throat> and when you had the opportunity to write his biography, this was something that he didn't, wasn't really interested in uh, throughout his career, so how did you get that opportunity? Well, when I retired from the Heinz Endowments, um, I was sort of uh, alarmed by the prospect of retirement. And uh, the president of uh, St. Vincent College in Latrobe, uh, which was just starting the Fred Rogers Center for Early Learning and Children's Media out there, asked me if I would come out for a couple of years and help them get it rolling, raise money, start programs. And so I agreed to do that. And after I'd been there a little while, I said to him and to Joanne Rogers, Fred's widow, why is there no biography of Fred Rogers? He's this renowned American figure. I don't understand why there's no biography. And we really need one to advance the work of the center. And they explained that when Fred was alive, he didn't want a biography done. He was very modest, and he, always, he refused numerous uh, request from authors um, to cooperate with a biography. And I said, well, that's, that's fine when Fred was alive, but he's gone now, and we're trying to raise millions, scores of millions, to get the center rolling and to advance his legacy, and we need a biography. And Joanne Rogers turned it right back on me, and she said, okay, you've convinced me. Why don't you write it? <laughs> hadn't thought of that. And the other thing I hadn't thought of was how much work it would be. It took me seven years uh, to do a good, full uh, biography that was uh, fully footnoted at, at an academic standard. Uh, but I said yes, and I'm, I'm glad that I did, because uh, over those years, it really gave me a chance to know uh, Fred deeply. So tell us about uh, the boy uh, that became Fred Rogers. Uh, he grew up in Western PA. Tell us about his family. Uh, he grew up in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, and his family uh, was very wealthy. His father uh, ran a couple of big manufacturing firms in Latrobe, uh, and the family was very well off with a lot of uh, means. Uh, but Fred himself was sickly when he was a little boy. Uh, he had asthma, he had colic, uh, he was bedridden a lot, he was shy, he was introverted. When he went to school, he was occasionally bullied by other students. So he had a rough childhood. But I think what made the big difference for Fred Rogers uh, was his family, his parents, his mother in particular, who was uh, just an exceptionally uh, loving person who treated him as a real person, not as a child, but she talked to him and she listened to him the way one would with an adult. And his grandparents were wonderfully supportive. And I think for Fred, having experienced a rough childhood and having had these caring grown-ups make such a difference in his life, that really focused uh, him on the work that he eventually uh, gave his life to. Mm. 
Uh, because um, he was sick uh, when he was a boy and his parents uh, were very protective of him, how did that impact uh, his shyness? Well, I think it made his shyness worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, his mother loved him deeply, but she was overprotective. Uh, the family had a limousine that took him to school every day. It was about 10 blocks from his home. And the limousine picked him up and took him to school. Fred made them drop him off a block away so that he wouldn't be too embarrassed in front of his school chums. And the limousine would come and pick him up at lunch, take him home for lunch, take him back to school, take him, bring him back home at the end of the day. And that was just a, one example of ways in which his mother was terribly uh, protective because she loved him. But, but that overprotectiveness I think, made his shyness worse and increased the bullying in his life. Mm. Uh, you mentioned he came from a wealthy family. Uh, sometimes when we hear that uh, someone is grow- grows up in that background, that they uh, will become spoiled. But that wasn't something that um, Fred Rogers wasn't someone that was spoiled and, and became um, that impacted his personality. But he was still uh, very kind. And who, who helped him with that? Well, he was, he was very kind. He was also very determined. He was a strong kid, and later he was a strong adult and very, very uh, uh, determined. So um, he, he had uh, strength of character to be kind and caring and giving, but he also had the strength of character uh, to advance his work. And I think um, probably his grandfather was the, the, the biggest single factor in helping him come out of his shell, uh, out of the sort of overprotected environment, and um, advance that strength. Uh, His grandfather was great in a variety of ways. He spent lots of time with Fred talking to him. He encouraged Fred. He told him how special he was. But he also encouraged Fred to um, get out of the cocoon he was in and take chances. There's a wonderful story Fred told later about being at his grandfather's farm. And as any little boy might, he climbed up on a stone wall and was walking along and playing on the stone wall. And his mother and grandmother came running over and said, oh, Freddie, you'll hurt yourself. And the grandfather intervened and said, no, 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 let the kid play. He probably will get hurt, but that's what has to happen to you growing up. And these were Fred and Nancy McFeely, so our listeners will recognize that last name, the McFeely. Yes, Fred McFeely. And, of course, uh, Fred Rogers was Fred McFeely Rogers, named uh, for for that grandfather that he loved so very, very much. The Good Neighbor, The Life and Work of Fred Rogers is the first biography about Mr. Rogers, who many of us grew up with or maybe remember our children uh, growing up with watching. Uh, uh, With us from WQED in Pittsburgh is Maxwell King. Uh, He wrote this biography. And you talked a little bit about um, Fred Rogers being bullied as a child, and he was very shy. So how did he respond to that? Uh, In some interesting, very interesting ways. There was one sort of seminal moment that uh, Fred himself recounted in a number of uh, speeches and addresses that he made uh, in which uh, the chauffeur who was to pick him up at the end of school didn't show up. School let out a little bit early and the chauffeur didn't get the word. So Fred set off to walk the 10 blocks back home and a group of kids started following him. So he was walking down the street, and he could hear these kids walking behind him. And then one of them said, 
Hey, Freddy. Hey, fat Freddy. We're going to get you, Freddy. And it terrified him. And he, and he ran. He ran down the street. Uh, and they chased him. But he got, there was, there was a friend of his parents who had a house about halfway between school and Fred's house. And he knocked on the door and she let him in. And then she called his parents and they took him home. And they said to him, oh, Fred, you've got to pretend you don't care. Just pretend you, you, you don't care at all. Be, be nonchalant and they won't pick on you. And Fred Rogers reported that the little Fred Rogers went upstairs and sat in his bedroom and thought to himself. He had this wonderfully caring mother and father and grandparents. He went to church with them every Sunday and listened to sermons about caring and being kind. And he sat upstairs alone, <coughs> excuse me, and he thought to himself, I do care. That's what I, that's what it, what I am. I care. And I am not going to pretend that I don't care. And it was a turning point for Fred in coming out of the cocoon, gaining strength. He became, uh, then in high school, he became the president of his uh, senior class in high school, editor of the yearbook, leader of the Dramatic Society, National Merit Scholar. So there was this real pivot point in which he almost had a conversation with himself and, and told himself what kind of caring person he wanted to be when he grew up. And this was also the time that he developed an interest in music and puppets, which we see uh, years later in the development of his show. Well, the interest in music and puppets came at the earliest years of Fred's life. When he was very little, he had a sort of a miniature, almost a toy piano that that he played on. And he had a great ear for music. He could hear a tune and then sit down at this little piano and play it. And uh, when he was very, very young, he had puppets and he had a puppet theater in the attic of his house. Uh, but the, the interest in music was sustaining for Fred. He often talked about uh, listening to music and then playing music as something that um, took him away from the stresses of, of his childhood and gave him comfort and solace. <clears throat> Oh, you mentioned his his love of music, and is that something that he wanted to then pursue when it was time for college? And and what happened there? Because he had a, a first choice, but it didn't work quite work out for him. Well, he was very interested. In me. Fred had a, a very eclectic set of interests. Uh, I think he he was interested in a lot of things. He was interested in in children and and education at an early age. He was interested in music. Uh, his father worked really hard to get him interested in business, which never truly developed. And, uh, and he was interested in becoming a Presbyterian minister from the time that he sat on the church uh, pew with his mother in church and listened to sermons and peppered her with questions in the middle of the service. He wanted to be a Presbyterian minister. So he went first to Dartmouth University up in New Hampshire and he, he said at the time that because he liked languages and he was very adept at languages, maybe he'd become a diplomat. So he had this very broad, eclectic set of interests and didn't seem to be focusing on one of them. But then, uh, in an interesting way, he was so miserable at Dartmouth. He, he hated the, the cold weather. He hated the sort of very uh, beer-soaked, athletic culture of Dartmouth at that time. And um, he, there was a music instructor there that he became close to, and that music instructor said, 
Fred, you really ought to leave. Go someplace where you can pursue your passion for music. It's, it's time to center on one thing. And he recommended that uh, Fred go down to Rollins College in Florida, which he did, which had then and still has today one of the best music departments in the country. And Fred ended up majoring in music uh, at Rollins College. That's also where he met his future wife, Joanne. Exactly. The, the day he arrived at Rollins, he flew in on an airplane. It's in north, northern uh, Florida, uh, near Orlando. And he flew in, and uh, one of the teachers there had been contacted by the teacher at Dartmouth who told uh, the Rollins teacher about Fred. And, and that uh, teacher at Rollins told all the students, there's this interesting, talented young man who wants to join us, and he's coming down. So they, these kids in the music department all found out what time that Fred's plane was going to arrive, and they piled into uh, an old, uh, well, it wasn't old then, but it would seem like an old car to us today, with a convertible top down with about... 10 students in it and drove out to the airport and swooped Fred up, pulled him into the car, laughing and telling jokes, and drove him back to Rollins. And he just immediately felt comfortable, felt uh, wrapped up in a very musical and caring culture at Rollins. And that's where he found, again, his, his future wife, Joanne. And, uh, Joanne was, was part of this group. And... Uh, very soon thereafter, they became uh, very close friends. And uh, their other friends uh, at, at college never really knew whether they were dating or just buddies. But they would study together. They would go to movies together. They would go to events together. Uh, and they became sort of inseparable friends. And then when they both graduated and Joanne went to graduate school and Fred went to New York, I think that's when Fred realized how very much Joanne meant to him. And he called her up on the phone. She was at a phone booth in, in Tallahassee, Florida, at, at, uh, at, uh, where she was studying. And on the telephone, he proposed marriage to her. And we're going to learn more about what Fred Rogers was doing in New York City. Uh, with us again from WQED in Pittsburgh is Maxwell King. He's the author of this new biography about Mr. Rogers called The Good Neighbor. We want to hear from you this hour. Uh, what do you remember about uh, when you watched uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood as a child? What are your memories of this man? And is he someone that you still wish was on your television today for your children to see? Are you looking at reruns on, on uh, Amazon? Uh, we want to hear from you. The number 860-275-7266 and more right after the break. You are my friend. You're special to me. You are the only one like you. Like you, my friend. I like you in the daytime, in the nighttime, anytime that you feel. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. What are your memories of growing up and watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? Here are a few staff members of Connecticut Public Radio sharing what stood out to them about Fred Rogers. When my son was growing up, he went through a period where he was fascinated by Mr. Rogers, a program he referred to as Odgers. Let's watch Odgers. 
He was 17, too. I don't know why he said that. No, he's about three years old. And one of the things that he liked, and people forget this, they don't mention it very often, but Fred Rogers used to do these kind of field pieces where he would go out to like a factory where something was made that, you know, kids would be familiar with. And um, Joey's mom remembers in particular one day when he he was watching this video of a doll factory. And, and, you know, so you see these sort of doll torsos coming along on a conveyor belt and these doll heads being crammed by some mechanical arm on top of the doll torso. Uh, and Joey was just sitting there slack-jawed in amazement. This, this is where dolls come from. And I'm not sure what Fred Rogers would say the purpose of this was. I think maybe just because, you know, everything does come from somewhere. My dad is a retired pediatrician and he adored Mr. Rogers. And I have a distinct memory that when faster paced kid shows like Sesame Street and others first started coming out, he scoffed and said they'd never hold a candle to Mr. Rogers. And I remember asking him why. And he said that these shows played into children's short attention span. Of course, that's why we love them so much. But Mr. Rogers, my dad said, strengthened young kids' ability to focus attention on one idea for a long period of time. It was a peaceful show. It was slower, calmer, and ultimately better, he thought, for very young minds. He could talk about something that was really divisive or or potentially controversial, but in such a caring way and in a subtle way that you really didn't even grasp the full complexity of what he was talking about, but you knew that there was something important that you were learning. And it's only really later in life for the decisions we made that the, the sort of lessons revealed themselves. What that show was about was this comforting series day after day of changing sweaters and changing shoes and puppets and songs. It was it was comforting and it was real. And his neighborhood was also my neighborhood. Where, where he set the show in the east end of Pittsburgh is where I grew up. And the people he had on the show sounded just like the people I grew up with. So Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood is, is a trip back home for me. It's something that's uh, comforting and real and something that will always stay with me, but not because of one big thing he did, but because he did it the same way for such a long, long time. Thanks to John Dankosky, David DeRoche, Diane Orson, and Colin McEnroe for sharing their memories with us. You can, too. Join their conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Now, this year marks 50 years since the show Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood debuted on public television nationwide. This is also the year a new documentary about Fred Rogers made it onto the big screen. And the first biography of this pioneer in children's programming uh, is coming out soon. The author of the biography is my guest today, Maxwell King, joining us from WQED in Pittsburgh. Uh, Again, his uh, new biography called The Good Neighbor, The Life and Work of Fred Rogers. Uh, Before the break, uh, Max, we heard you talking about uh, Fred's transition to New York. So he wanted to be a minister, but when was he first introduced to television? In his senior year at college, he came home for spring break, and his parents had a television set. This is the late 1940s. And I think it was the first television set in town in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. And that uh, long weekend when he was at home, he sat there and watched television. And he had two reactions. One was he was horrified at the sort of simple, silly, slapstick, sometimes violent pie-in-your-face kind of atmosphere of early television. 
And the other reaction he had was he he was captured by the potential of television. He immediately saw that it had great potential as an educational tool. And by the end of the weekend, he announced to his parents, his mother wanted him to be a minister. His father wanted him to go into business. Fred kept talking about being a musician. And suddenly at the end of the weekend, he said, I'm going into television. (laughs) And what was their reaction? They weren't too pleased. Well, I don't think either one of his parents were pleased, and they were sort of mystified. Why would you do it? They didn't see in television what Fred saw, that it would have this huge cultural impact on the country. So, no, I don't, I don't think they were pleased at all, but they were really wonderful parents. They didn't fight him. They didn't resist it. They didn't say, oh, Fred, every six months you have another idea of what you want to be when you, when you grow up. Uh, they talked to him about it. His mother supported him. And his father, very, very nice. His father had um, contacts at NBC in New York, which was owned by RCA. And way early in the family history, his um, great-grandfather, I guess it was, had been an investor in RCA in the early part of the 20th century. The family had a ton of RCA stock. His father had a little influence there and called up a man he knew, a vice president at NBC, and they took Fred on as an intern at that time, uh, just when NBC was beginning to to start producing its own programming. So it was his privilege that got him into the doors at NBC. What did he do there? He He was an intern at first. He then became a floor manager, which is a terribly important position. Uh, when something's being filmed in a studio, uh, the floor manager is, is almost like the on-scene director who has to make sure that everything goes right and communicates to the director himself or herself who's up in, in, in a booth. But the, the great thing, yeah, it was Fred's privilege that got him in the door at NBC, but he was immediately uh, successful, skilled, and appreciated. And for Fred himself, Excuse me again. Um, For Fred himself, this was one of the great lucky breaks in his life because at that time, NBC, under the direction of a man named Pat Weaver, uh, who turned out to be the father of Sigourney Weaver, the actress, but Pat Weaver was in charge of NBC during much of the 1950s, and he saw television as this culturally uplifting uh, uh, technology that could could be wonderful for the whole country. And so he focused NBC on making really important, serious cultural programming. So it was a great training ground for somebody like Fred Rogers and helped Fred Rogers see that if he, that it was possible to set very high standards for television programming and make a difference thereby. This is where we live. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. John's calling from Avon as we talk about uh, the legacy of Mr. Rogers. Uh, John, what's your memories of of, of watching? Well, you know, I was, I was, I grew up on on Mr. Rogers, and, but it's interesting, my perspective is that I didn't really appreciate what he was, how influential, influential, and and amazing this man was until I was in my late twenties, early thirties. Um, 
the the best story that I can remember really understanding how great he was was when his car got stolen, and when they realized it was his car, they returned it <laughs> and left a note saying that that oh my goodness, I can't believe I stole Mister Rogers' car. So here, you know, I'm going to bring it back. That was how important he was to the kids that um, uh, that that watched him, and I didn't realize how wonderful of a man he was until later on in life. Um, the other, the other little antidote that, that I, I, um, have is the, is the fact that there's a meme going around Facebook. Now the, the Trinity of of wholesomeness, it was Fred Rogers, Bob Ross and Steve Irwin, you know, love others, love yourself and love animals. And it's just, it's funny how, you know, 30 to 50 years later, everybody's kind of reflecting back on things and going, Oh my goodness, this, this man was amazing. Mm. And it's just a shame that, you know, we don't have somebody else quite like him, uh, today. And, um, you know, but it, he was just, he was just an amazing person. I didn't appreciate that at the time, but I do now. Well, John, thank you so much for your, for your call. Uh, Max King, uh, again, a lot of people share that sentiment that uh, Fred Rogers was truly unique. What I want to know is why, you know, where, where did we see this shift where he saw this, uh, the importance of, of using television to reach children and in a way that was so unique and we never saw it before? Well, first of all, I want to say something about the anecdote about the stolen car because there's hundreds of uh, myths about Fred Rogers on uh, the web, and a few of them are true, and that's one of the ones that is actually true, that they brought his car back and left that note on the windshield. So I thought it was charming that he remembered that particular incident. But... um, when Fred Rogers, he, when he um, was done with a three-year internship at NBC, and of course NBC offered to make him a full-time employee and keep him there, but at the same time WQED was starting as the first community-based public television station in the United States here in Pittsburgh, and uh, Fred Rogers got a chance to come out here and join WQED actually before it went on the air and um, begin to shape some of the programming. And one of the very first things that happened was, they were desperate to fill the air, by the way, for, for, because they didn't have a lot of money, they didn't have a lot of uh, uh, programming that they created, but they wanted to have a children's program. And so Fred Rogers and Josie Carey, one of the secretaries at the station, sort of ad hoc began to create a children's program called the Children's Corner which was very successful. It won a Sylvania Award for the best locally produced children's show in the country at the time, 1956, I think. It was very successful, and increasingly it was frustrating for Fred because it was entertaining, it was lighthearted, but it wasn't educational in the way that Fred really wanted to see television be, that he thought television could be. At the time... Uh, in the in the mid to late 50s, he was going to the seminary here and becoming uh, uh, a minister, a Presbyterian minister. And one of his teachers there said, well, Fred, when you graduate from the seminary, wh- what do you think you want to be? And Fred Rogers said, I want to have a ministry to children, and I want to do it on television. And the teacher said, what? 
what on earth are you talking about? But you know, Fred, if that's really what you're thinking of, which I've never seen before in the Presbyterian Church, you ought to go over to the University of Pittsburgh and uh, study under Dr. Margaret McFarland, who is one of the leading experts on uh, child development in the country. And that is what triggered the, 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 the step up for Fred Rogers. Uh, Margaret McFarland had other people at, at Pitt then. Uh, Dr. Benjamin Spock was there. Dr. Barry Brazelton, the famed pediatrician, was there. Eric Erickson, uh, the psychologist and writer, was there. So there was this sort of um, teeming petri dish of, of creative thinking about children at Pitt. And Fred got dropped right into the middle of it. And it changed his life and it changed his approach to television. He ended up uh, in Canada at the CBC, and there was a show there that was the precursor to Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Tell us about that venture. Well, uh, toward the end of of the 1950s, when he was finishing up at the seminary and was very frustrated with the children's corner, he sort of uh, closed down the children's corner, which was very distressing to Josie Carey, who loved it. And... uh, was looking for other opportunities to advance uh, really thoughtful educational television. And he got approached uh, by people at the um, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation in Toronto to come up. And they said to him, we'll let you create whatever children's program you want to create. And so he went up there. He didn't move his family up there right away. He went up there alone. And he started working with them to, to fashion a new children's program and um, the director said to him uh, we'll let you uh, take it in any direction you want but there's one thing that we think is really important that we want to insist on and that is you come out from behind the camera Fred had always been uh, the creator of the show the director of the show he operated puppets but he was never on screen himself and this man said I have an instinct that you would be fantastic, you yourself would be fantastic with children, and I want you to stand up and be out in front of the camera talking to the children. Uh, Fred was nonplussed by this, and he really didn't want to do it, but he did, and it instantly connected, and it changed the character and the tenor of that program completely. Now, why did he go back to Western Pennsylvania and eventually went back to WQED? Well, it's... It's interesting, and it shows, you know, earlier on you had asked about Fred and and the money that his family had and what sort of influence it had on him and uh, how money can change people in a variety of ways. Fred Rogers ended up getting a little bit frustrated in, in Toronto because it was a 15-minute program. He wanted to evolve it to a 30-minute program, and he wanted to emphasize social and emotional learning much more than the program was. And the people at the CDC said, you know, what you do is wonderful. Everybody loves it. Let's not change it. So he left and he came back to Western Pennsylvania without a program, without a job, without a sponsor. He came back to Pittsburgh uh, because he thought that he could he could figure out how to shape the program uh, the way he really wanted it to evolve it, the way he really wanted it to evolve. But he, he used the fact that he had some independent wealth to give him the freedom to come back. He ended up then uh, 
in the basement of a church here in the east end of Pittsburgh, where WQED is, in the basement of a church, teaching a uh, preschool class of students with puppets to sort of learn from the students what they would react to. And everybody in his family thought, Fred, you had this great career, and now you're you don't have a job. You're you're in the basement of this church with a with a a little class of of preschool students. What's going on? But he was determined to use the flexibility that the money gave him uh, to keep trying to get this vision realized. And and at one point he was approached by people from Horn's department store here, saying they wanted him to do a um, an hour long special for Christmas. And he did it, and it was a huge success, and it led to other connections and other people both at PBS, at, at public television. It wasn't PBS at the time, but it was national educational television. And here in Pittsburgh, uh, began to support Fred and put the funds in to get the program started on WQED. I understand it was on for a year and it became uh, very popular. And that's when uh, he was invited to testify before Congress, the Subcommittee on Communications, uh, all about the funding of educational television. Why did they choose Mr. Rogers? Uh, well, we're going to play a little bit of that clip in a couple of minutes, but uh, lead us up to that moment. Well, there's a wonderful backstory to uh, that appearance uh, before the Senate committee. Um, the executives who were trying to pull together funding and actually bring the public broadcasting system into being back then, and they wanted to get $20 million of, of federal funding to do that. Uh, and it was, it was controversial because the federal government was, was uh, now we accept the fact that the federal government overspends grossly, but back then it was something they were very concerned about. And the cost of the Vietnam War, which was not part of the general fund, was being funded outside the budget, uh, was creating enormous budgetary uh, issues for the federal government. So the assignment that the newly elected president, Richard Nixon, gave to Senator John Pastore, the chairman of the committee, was, let's cut this money. We can't afford it. <coughs> so let's figure out how to save this $20 million. And the executives uh, who were from public television, from public television stations around the country, who were invited to come down and make a presentation and argue for why the money should be saved, um, well, that group was led by a guy named Hartford Gunn, who was the, the president of WGBH uh, in Boston. And uh, Hartford Gunn knew Fred Rogers because he had come to WGBH to do uh, appearances several times, and he knew that Rogers had this extraordinarily magnetic and authentic personality that connected with people. So he said, I want to bring Fred Rogers and make him the key person testifying. And his uh, mates said, a children television star? Are you kidding? <laughs> now, Max, we have a, a clip of Fred Rogers when he testified in a dialogue with Rhode Island Senator John Pastore. Let's take a listen. Could I tell you the words of one of the songs which I feel is very important? Yes. This has to do with that good feeling of control, which I feel that the children need to know is there. And it starts out, what do you do with the mad that you feel? And that first line came straight from a child. I work with children. 
doing puppets in, in very personal communication with small groups. What do you do with the mad that you feel? When you feel so mad you could bite. When the whole wide world seems oh so wrong and nothing you do seems very right. What do you do? Do you punch a bag? Do you pound some clay or some dough? Do you round up friends for a game of tag or see how fast you go? It's great to be able to stop when you've planned a thing that's wrong and be able to do something else instead and think this song. I can stop when I want to, can stop when I wish, can stop, stop, stop any time. And what a good feeling to feel like this and know that the feeling is really mine know that there's something deep inside that helps us become what we can for a girl can be someday a lady and a boy can be someday a man i think it's wonderful i think it's wonderful <clears throat> looks like you just earned the 20 million dollars <laughs> So we hear uh, Fred Rogers win over the very gruff senator. Uh, and that clip actually resurfaced again in 2017, Max. Well, I think it keeps resurfacing over and over again. Uh, it, it resurfaces when there are questions about public television and funding of public television, that as, as happened in 2017. But it keeps resurfacing all the time. <clears throat> because of the power of the presentation and the authenticity of Rogers, which really won, won the day. What's interesting about that television clip is for years it's been taught in business schools all around the country as a great example of effective marketing. This is where we live. Joining us from WQED in Pittsburgh is Maxwell King. He's the author of this new biography, The Good Neighbor, The Life and Work of Fred Rogers. We're going to continue our conversation learning about Mr. Rogers. Uh, we got a tweet from Max who writes, along with everything else he did for kids, he exposed us to great music. He had taught songs and melodies, hosted outstanding great music, guest musicians, and he played jazz harmonies on piano. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. There are many ways to say I love you just by being... This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Today we're learning about the life of Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers. The first biography about him comes out uh, soon. The author is joining us from the studios of WQED in Pittsburgh, Maxwell King, president and CEO of the Pittsburgh Foundation. His book called The Good Neighbor, The Life and Work of Fred Rogers. Uh, we got a tweet uh, from a listener, uh, Katie, who writes, my grandma had a set of color-coordinated keds for every outfit and used to keep them in her loafers on the stairs down to the TV room. I can remember watching Mr. Rogers and taking off her loafers and trying to tie her sneakers on my tiny, tiny feet. Uh, Fred Rogers was on television for, for many decades. How did his show evolve, Max? Uh, it, it evolved in some interesting ways because he had about five years on, or I guess closer to seven years, but between six and seven, on national educational television. And uh, it became very strong in ways that he wanted it to be, very very educational in ways that were focused on social and emotional learning. And then in 1975, he decided he'd really done what he thought he could do with that show, and he decided to um, take a break. I, I don't think he, he said that he was going to close down the show forever, 
but he um, had a lot of programs in the can that public television could keep showing, and he stopped producing children's television, and he went into producing um, some different interesting kinds of adult uh, talk shows about issues and uh, program biography programs, uh, segments about uh, certain people's lives, Hoagy Carmichael, Senator John Hines, that sort of a thing. And it never really clicked in. And he increasingly became frustrated because he knew he wasn't reaching an audience. And um, back in 1979, he and uh, David Newell, who played the Mr. McFeely character on the show, were in Honolulu, Hawaii, where Fred had to make a speech. And David Newell, riding in a cab with Rogers, read a story about a little kid watching television and then putting a cape around his neck and jumping out the window and being terribly, terribly hurt. And Rogers didn't get angry very often, but when, but one of the things that could make him really, really angry was when he thought children were misled in ways that harmed them. And in that taxi cab, he and Newell started talking about how to evolve a, a whole new approach to Mr. Rogers' neighborhood that would, that would take an entire week, what he would call a theme week, and would weave the same theme in and out of the neighborhood of make-believe and the real neighborhood segments and weave it in and out for five straight days. Very complicated script writing. And, of course, Rogers went right back to Dr. Mark McFarland at Pitt to get advice. And what he decided, he and McFarland together decided, was that they should tackle the toughest issues in the world for kids. They made series about death, about violence, about divorce, about lost, getting lost, children fearing getting lost, how things get lost. The very, I mean, the toughest issues in life they were making children's television about. So it then evolved in the 1980s into a program that was still entertaining and popular with kids, but was this fabulously serious piece of work on television, children's television. We only have a few minutes left, uh, Max, and I wanted to to get your perspective on, uh, you know, what Fred Rogers would would think of technology and its role in the lives of children today. Well, it, one of the things that's very interesting about Fred is that when he was confronted with the cutting-edge technology of his day, and television was, if anything, more transformative than the technologies we deal with today, or at least as, as transformative, his first instinct was not to shy away from it and reject it, but to figure out how it could be used for good. And I think that's exactly what Fred Rogers would do faced with, um, with the web, with social media, with handheld devices, applications, all sorts of things in the modern media landscape. I think he'd worry about it. I think he'd worry about the impact particularly on children, but I think he'd set to work right away to figure out how to use it for good. Mm. And his show, uh, while we look back on it, it might look and seem outdated. The themes really uh, stay true and connect uh, with all of us today about kindness and civility uh, and yeah. empathy. Uh, you, you wrote this biography. It took you seven years. What do you hope the listeners and readers will get out of it? I, peep, I hope that people will understand uh, Fred Rogers as a very serious thinker 
really a philosopher and that they will understand his importance in terms of emphasizing uh, social and emotional education for children, which has advanced greatly in the United States. And they'll appreciate uh, that important part of his legacy. But I also hope that they will see him as an exemplary figure. You know, we live in a time that is so speeded up and intense and sometimes harsh and unforgiving and nasty. And I see Fred Rogers as a great antidote to those times. If you if you take his message down to the most simple version you could possibly create for it, it is slow down, be kind. Maxwell King, president and CEO of the Pittsburgh Foundation, also author of this new biography on Mr. Rogers, The Good Neighbor, The Life and Work of Fred Rogers, joining us today from the studios of WQED in Pittsburgh. Max, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Great to be with you. Thank you, Lucy. Today's show produced by senior producer Lydia Brown. Special thanks to Carmen Baskoff and Katie Tolarski. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. The way you are right now, the way down deep inside you, not the things that hide you, not your towels, they're just beside you. But it's you I like, every part of you, your skin, your eyes, your feelings, whether old or new. I hope that you'll remember, even when you're feeling blue, that it's you I like. It's you yourself, it's you, it's you, I like.